I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. In the late 16th and 17th centuries, ghosts became tricky. In Elizabethan and Stuart England, they weren't supposed to exist. Protestant preachers and writers had banished them, along with the idea of purgatory, but they had slunk back to earth, and they kept coming. People kept on seeing them. So how did our early modern forebears reckon with ghosts and their heavenly counterpart, angels? I'm delighted to address this question with Peter Marshall, Professor of History at Warwick University, Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a Fellow of the British Academy. He's the author of the prize-winning Heretics and Believers, A History of the English Reformation and much important work besides that that very clearly explains religious identities in Reformation England. Check out his The Reformation, a very short introduction, for example. He's also the author of several books on ghosts, Beliefs and the Dead in Reformation England, Invisible Worlds, and Mother Leakey and the Bishop, a ghost story. And that's where we start. Professor Peter Marshall, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, among your many wonderful books, you wrote one that I enjoyed enormously some time ago called Mother Leakey and the Bishop, a ghost story. And it explores a ghost story from the 17th century. Mother Leakey, Susan Leakey, mother-in-law of one John Atherton, a rector in Somerset and later Bishop of Ireland. And the ghost bit comes in when Susan Leakey returns from the grave to expose his crimes. Can we start with a bit of storytelling? Can you tell me a bit about your historical investigation into Susan's ghost? Sure. Well, it's quite a convoluted story. And you just summarised it brilliantly well at the outset. You know, it's a bit of a joke among historians. Sometimes people say, well, that's an article, but, you know, really it's a footnote. So this was a book which literally started as a footnote. I was looking for references to ghosts because I was doing a rather more sort of staid and scholarly book about commemoration and culture around the dead in early modern England. And I found a footnote in a famous book, which I'm sure listeners will have heard of, Sir Keith Thomas's Religion and the Decline of Magic, 1971, which has a wonderful chapter on ghosts, one of the first historians really to take that subject seriously. And he makes passing mention to the appearance of a ghost in Minehead in Somerset. And the footnote reference is to manuscripts in the National Archives. And I'd actually just been invited to go to a conference in Durham to talk about ghosts. So I thought, I wonder if there's a little case study in this. So I found the manuscripts 
and absolutely wonderful. I hadn't come across anything quite like it before because the ghost appears on several occasions to four or five different witnesses. And in front of a little commission, they report what the ghost says to them. And it seems to be all about a kind of family quarrel about an inheritance and a golden chain that a sister-in-law is withholding after the death of Mother Leakey. So I wrote all that up. And then I thought, well, a proper historian should kind of fill this out a bit. Thicken the description is the word that's sometimes used. So I went down to the Somerset Record Office in Taunton to see if I could find any of the people in parish records and was able actually to find out quite a bit about who these people were and felt rather pleased with myself. The conference plate was ready to go. And I'd gone down with a colleague to the record office and I'd finished a little bit earlier than he had. So I was just sort of filling in time really and looking around the shelves and came across a local history of Minehead from 1903, written by a vicar in the vicinity. And I thought, I wonder if he knew about this Minehead ghost story. So I had a look, and not only did he know about it, he had a complete transcription of all the records that I'd been painstakingly interpreting myself. And he kicked all this off by saying, of course, we mustn't neglect the famous Minehead ghost story immortalized by Sir Walter Scott. So clearly everybody, educated readers at the end of the 19th century, knew that this was a story of national importance that 19th century Britain's most famous novelist had written about. And from there, really, I started reading the story backwards from Scott's sources to a whole series of pamphlets that are published at various times in the 18th century and the 17th century, and kind of started answering a question which I really should have asked myself at the very beginning, which was why on earth the Privy Council in London and the Archbishop of Canterbury were interested in the obscure goings-on of a merchant family in Minehead. And as, as you said in your introductory question, it turned out this was all about a bishop in Ireland at the centre of great political and religious controversies around the nature of the church at that crucial moment in the decades before the Civil War, and about recovering the lands of the church in Ireland, and the ghost had something to say about him. And this is a bishop who, a few years later, at the end of 1640, is tried and executed for sodomy. I believe, I'm right in saying, the only Anglican bishop ever to be tried and executed for that crime. So this makes it quite a big deal. And the book, and I won't try and describe the complexities of it anymore, but it's really an attempt to work out how these two stories, the kind of scandal and the political importance of the downfall of a bishop in Ireland and the family drama in Somerset connect with each other, and also how those stories keep reconnecting and being retold over time. So I mean, I realize there's a risk of this sounding a little bit pretentious, but one of the things I tried to do with the book is give a sense of how these stories work over time, what sort of functions they perform in different settings. And also, actually, as they used to say to me in maths class, to, to show my workings and to actually make part of the narrative itself the story of how I came across the material and how I hit various dead walls and loose ends along the way. I hope it's interesting and has important things to say, but it's a book that I think probably raises more questions than it answers. It's a really wonderful book, not only in the story it tells, but precisely that it does show your workings, because 
for anyone outside the historical discipline, or indeed those of us who are also, you know, trying to do our own thing, it's so refreshing to have an insight into a scholar of, you know, your magnitude and your process and seeing that you too get to the end of a day's work and think, I've got something really brilliant here, and then find out that actually it was famous 100 years ago. So I really recommend it for those who are interested in the workings of history. But I want to ask you whether the role of the ghost, the function of the ghost, as it were, in that story is typical. Do we see ghosts in the 16th and 17th centuries being thought of as those who visit those who are still living to carry out unfinished business? Yes, I think that's broadly right. I mean, I'm very wary of generalising too much about these ghost stories because by definition, they're strange and unusual. I mean, they're strange and unusual if they're reported on now, and they were strange and unusual in the early modern period as well. So there's no sense in which the appearance of a ghost is ever a kind of, oh, yes, here's another ghost, something that is just part of the expected day-to-day experiences of people. But having said all that, I think it is broadly true, as far as we can tell, that ghosts usually have a meaning or a purpose or a thought to have that. It's been said that one of the crucial differences between modern and early modern ghosts is that modern ghosts are usually thought to haunt places whereas early modern ghosts haunt people. And that's not entirely or always true, but I think there is something to that. So whatever it turns out to be, there's always a sense of kind of unfinished business in one way or another. A ghost is somebody who has left this life in some kind of broken or unusual or incomplete way and has business still to see to with the living. Now, you've returned to the theme of ghosts in other works as well. One of your books is called Invisible Worlds, and in it you quote the Henrician reformer Robert Wisdom in 1543, and there's such a great line, that souls departed do not come again and play Bo Peep with us. And I wanted to ask you how this works after the Reformation. If we have a society that, at least under law, has rejected purgatory, where do we put ghosts if they are the souls of the dead who are not at rest? I mean, I think coming at that question sort of sideways, being sort of confessional autobiographical again, I mean, one of the things that actually drew me to this topic and that continues to interest me, I think, about similar topics is it's one of those areas where actually the concerns, the priorities, the fears and hopes of ordinary people kind of collide head on with the priorities and the views and the theologies of what we call elites and intellectuals and clergy. I mean, witchcraft, I suppose, is another famous meeting point of those two different social worlds. And just picking up what you said just now about purgatory. So before the Reformation in the medieval period, there was a general understanding that if ghosts of the dead appeared, they were souls on a kind of temporary release from purgatory. And maybe just to remind listeners, so purgatory is the Christian, specifically Catholic doctrine that after this life, there is a third place beside heaven and hell where the souls of the dead will be gradually purged and purified 
and made ready for heaven. And the history of the development of the doctrine of purgatory is probably something that we don't want to get into in too much detail here. But in a sense, it's a doctrine which makes it possible for ordinary people, not terribly holy people, to be saved. And one of the things which, in a sense, is both crucial and rather attractive about the doctrine of purgatory is that it kind of makes salvation more of a collective business, because it's a very firmly established belief that the living can help the dead on their process to ultimate salvation in heaven. And they do that by praying for them, perhaps acquiring indulgences for them, something which famously upsets Martin Luther and kickstarts the Reformation by doing a variety of sort of good deeds on their behalf. So the logic here is that ghosts might come back to remind the living of those obligations. So the typical medieval ghost is appearing to request prayers and masses, or perhaps to confess to some sin that they've committed, but they're doing something to enable themselves to be put to rest. Most of the time, that seems to be what's happening. Now, Protestant reformers, Luther himself and those who came after him, decided that purgatory was basically a fiction, a contract that this wasn't somewhere mentioned anywhere in the Bible, that it was a kind of insult, really, to Christ's own atoning work on the cross. In the Protestant theology, salvation comes entirely through grace as a result of Christ's sacrifice. And so the idea that people are scrubbing themselves up in purgatory and contributing their own effort to this is theologically unacceptable. And also that purgatory was frankly a scam. So William Tyndale, the famous English Protestant theologian, coins the phrase purgatory pickpurse, because of course, to have masses said for the dead means employing clergymen to say them. So the understanding was that really the clergy encouraged these stories of returning ghosts in order to line their own pockets. So when the true light of the gospel, as it were, was finally revealed, purgatory is abolished, ghosts have no reason to appear, and so you have people like Wisdom and other Protestant clergymen at that time in the mid-16th century saying, you know, that's it, the ghosts are all gone. They've all fled off to Italy, says one Protestant. But pretty soon it turns out that that's not the case, and ordinary people are still seeing ghosts. So interesting. I just was really struck by this idea that the Reformation sort of takes an axe to this connection between the living and the dead. Not only, I suppose, you've got the living praying for the souls of the dead in purgatory, but then you've got those who have made it to heaven, presumably able to intercede for those on earth. And there's a kind of cycle of prayer and connection between the living and the dead, which is cut off by the Protestants. Is that a fair way of summarising it? I think it is, actually. That idea of communication between the living and the dead is pretty inimical to Protestant understandings and sentiment. And you're absolutely right to mention that the saints there, because one of the things that the Protestant reformers loathed about the church that they were leaving was its invocation, as they saw it, its idolatrous worship of the saints and the cult of the saints and the idea that the saints were necessary to hear the prayers of the living and to intercede on their behalf with Christ in heaven. So the Reformation imposes, I guess we could say, a kind of communications blackout. And Protestant reformers generally said that the saints in heaven literally could not hear the prayers and thoughts of the living on earth. 
So yes, you remember the dead and you think of them respectfully, but the idea was that you would do that in a commemorative way. So you remember their lives as lived in this world, as a source of inspiration and so on, and reverence their memory, but you wouldn't be actively involved in trying to bring about their salvation. I mean, some historians have hung a great deal of weight on this and almost seen this as a sort of seismic shift in the understanding of time itself, and that the origins of modern history and thinking about people as firmly belonging in the past date to this. I think that's maybe to oversimplify a bit. But broadly speaking, that's right. The links, as they had existed between the living and the dead, ought to be severed. To take and completely ruin your metaphor, the communications blackout, though, means that the message hasn't reached the ghosts. And people do apparently still see them. You mentioned earlier that ordinary people continued to have encounters with what they took to be ghosts. So what are Protestant preachers and writers doing with this? How are they conceptualising it and explaining what's apparently happening in ordinary people's lives? Well, they have to do that, really. And there were a number of possible approaches. I mean, one was to say that Catholic clergy was still fraudulently causing these appearances. And to some extent, you know, they can pin some things on wicked Jesuits who are coming into England. Um, but uh, it's really too widespread a phenomenon for that to be plausible. We get some of what, and I'm picking my words a bit carefully here, of what we might call rather more sort of modern approaches in suggesting that, you know, these are illusions that people are having because of mental illnesses or sicknesses of some kind. The famous early modern disease or malady of melancholy is often blamed for people seeing apparitions that aren't really there. But also there were theological explanations. And the logic of this really is that if spirit Spirits are not the souls of the dead, because by definition, the souls of the dead, well, they're not in purgatory because that doesn't exist. If they're in heaven, they would have no reason to come back. And if they were in hell, God and the devil wouldn't release them. So the logic meant they had to be something else. And that meant, frankly, either that they were good spirits or wicked spirits, they were angels or they were devils or demons. And the possibility of there being angels, frankly, was usually pretty quickly ruled out by Protestant theologians. They recognized that as a theoretical possibility, but it didn't seem very likely that God would be sending angels with new messages to the living when everything that was necessary to be believed, of course, according to Protestants, is there in Scripture. So they were left with this rather bleak message that the devil or the devil's agents were taking on the likeness of dead people in order to lure the living into damnable acts. It does absolutely seem bleak, and it seems almost cruel, actually, counterintuitive, perhaps, because I was reading a grief memoir the other day in which a mother who'd lost her young adult son, it's a very moving piece of work, feels that after death he comes to her in birds. And it feels like there's something almost universal about seeking to connect with those who've died. So again, back to that severing, it is to render the appearance of these apparent ghosts as demons is to do something huge with contemporary folk outlooks, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think counterintuitive is a really good way of describing it, partly because the sort of things that ghosts stroke demons appear to be doing just seems a kind of very unlikely game plan for the devil to be involved in, because uh, they tend to be coming back to try and sort out problems in what often seems quite a positive way. They uncover murders. 
They point people to the location of buried treasure. They prevent legatees being conned out of their inheritance by wicked executors. They uncover crimes of all kinds. What's the devil sort of doing here? It seems intrinsically implausible. And as you say, a kind of very cruel idea as well, that you know the devil is taking on the likeness of loved ones. So it's a line that I think in the end, Protestant theologians are just unable to hold. And particularly by the time we get into the 17th century, there are lots of examples of Protestant clergymen themselves actually either explicitly or implicitly recognising the possibility of the appearance of ghosts. And I think it's just one of those areas where actually looking for complete theological consistency is probably not a sensible idea. I mean, this is one where I think the instincts and experiences of ordinary people actually in the end trump and win out over the logical explanations of the theologians. And in fact, just to carry this on a little bit chronologically further forward, in some ways it goes a step further than that, because by the time we get to the middle and the second half of the 17th century, in some ways, in a lot of Protestant circles, the sort of main anxiety has kind of shifted from a fear of Catholicism, popery, as they would have called it, towards growing concerns about irreligion, atheism, Sadducism, they often called it, because the ancient Jewish Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so you find networks of Protestant clergymen who are desperate to collect any evidence they can find of spiritual occurrences, whether that's witchcraft or the appearance of ghosts and spirits, in order to demonstrate the existence of an invisible, a spiritual world, and therefore, frankly, to demonstrate the existence of God. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I suppose if we're thinking about ghosts and unfinished business, we need to think about death. And the early modern period is a period that focuses a lot on the art of dying well. What did they take to be a good death? I mean, it sounds rather flippant to say, you know, there was more death around in the early modern period. And, you know, the one thing all human societies have in common, of course, is a 100% death rate. But of course, life expectancy was shorter. Bereavement was a much more common experience. Death was not medicalized and hidden away in hospitals. So, you know, people have the experience of seeing corpses, I think, much more often than we do. And culturally, this idea of a good death was very strong. That was something actually inherited from the Middle Ages into the early modern and post-Reformation period. And the good death is not perhaps what we would think of it as being today, which is a painless and peaceful death, but a good death is a spiritually correct death, a death which is prepared, which ties up the loose ends of life. That meant different things, of course, 
for Protestants and Catholics. Catholics had a rather ritualized management of the deathbed. People will perhaps have heard of the famous last rites, which are offered to people on their deathbed, which is a package of three of the Catholic sacraments, the anointing with oil, which is in this period called extreme unction, a last confession of sins, and a last reception of communion. And this last communion is known in Latin as the viaticum, which is literally what you take with you along the way. So people are equipped for this final journey. And in the medieval period, I think it's fair to say that the deathbed is a place of intense danger, because no matter how good a life you have lived, there is a possibility that it can all be thrown away right at the end. And what is being thrown away here, of course, is your possibility of salvation. When people, as of course they often are, in the final moments of their life are weakened, then the devil is straight in there trying to tempt them, particularly to tempt them to despair. Despair is often seen as the greatest sin in the Middle Ages, this belief, or rather a refusal to believe that God is actually going to or wants to save you. So all this kind of ritual management of the deathbeds with sacraments, prayers, holy water, crucifixes being held aloft is intended to ward off the attacks of the devil and his minions. There's a wonderful series of woodcut illustrations which accompanies this famous text, the Ars Moriendi, the art of how to die or of dying well, which appears in lots of editions in lots of countries in the 15th and early 16th century, which shows what a remarkably busy place the deathbed could be. It's not a private, solitary matter, death at all, because not only would a priest be there, but family and neighbours would be there. And this is shown wonderfully in the pictures, invisible forces or at least invisible to most of the bystanders, but perhaps visible to the dying person themselves, angels, saints, and demons would be contending over the soul of the final person. So there's a kind of dramatic struggle on the deathbed, and if all goes well, then the soul is helped to go on to heaven. Now, taking a breath here, but you would think that the Reformation would kind of completely wipe out that picture, because salvation is no longer a matter of human effort. And indeed, in the Calvinist scheme of predestination, which seems to have become the dominant theology in post-Reformation England, salvation is already decided. So there's nothing to gain or lose on the deathbed. And yet the extraordinary thing is that there was an ongoing intense interest in the making of a good death in post-Reformation England as well. So what exactly happened? I mean, because if you have angels beside the deathbed of a late medieval Catholic and they die well and their soul is conveyed by those angels to heaven, to Abraham's bosom, where do the watery angels go? Do they still have a role to play in that post-Reformation Calvinist form of Protestantism? They do, I think. In some ways, that's quite surprising because angels, you would imagine, would be a focus of intense suspicion and hostility in Protestant circles. You know, saints and angels are often grouped together. Angels like saints are a focus of the religious imagery of the late medieval church, which Protestants regard as at best unnecessary and at worst, frankly, idolatrous. There's a cult of holy angels in late medieval Catholicism. So the saints are ditched. You might expect angels to go the same way. But the crucial difference, I think, is that angels are intensely biblical. 
scripture, both the Old Testament, or what Christians call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament are full of references to angels. I think there are 250, 260 separate references to angels. And you mentioned just now, I think, with Abraham's bosom, one of the famous examples of this, which is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus is scorned by the rich man and sits begging at his gate, but the tables are turned when they die, and the rich man is dragged off to hell. And Lazarus, this is in St. Luke's Gospel, is carried off by angels to the bosom of Abraham. So angels, clearly, for Protestants who can't reject or ignore the teaching of Scripture, carry on playing a role in this process and in this management of the good death. And I should perhaps have put in earlier that I think one of the reasons why even Calvinists remain rather obsessed with the idea of a good death is that although nothing has been decided at that point, it's still a moment of witness and proof. And being able to perform a good death is what a lot of Calvinists would have considered a sign of election. So it's intensely reassuring both to the dying person themselves and to their friends and neighbours if they manage to die well, because that may well be a sign of God's favour. And indeed, their religious enemies often spread scurrilous stories of Calvinists dying horribly. Calvin himself is accused by Catholics and indeed by German Lutherans of having despaired on his own deathbed and called on the devil and so on. So the deathbed remains you know, not just an intense experience for ordinary people, but a kind of site of ideological contest. What does this mean for ideas about guardian angels? Do they have any place in Reformation England? Well, they do, and that's quite surprising as well. So this is the notion, again, inherited from the Middle Ages, that humans are assigned an individual angel to look out for them and to intercede for them and, indeed, to try and steer them on the right path. So, you know, a very powerful indication of God's love for people. The guardian angel was also the focus of a medieval cult, and indeed that kind of accelerates after the Reformation as well. So in the Catholic Counter-Reformation, a special feast day of the guardian angel is instituted in 1608. So once again, you'd expect Protestants to be pretty equivocal about the guardian angels, but in fact some of them rather liked the idea. I mean, Luther was very much in favour of this notion. Luther, of course, rather conservative in a whole series of ways. Calvin was a bit more cool about it, but other Calvinists ended up being rather sort of drawn to the idea. And when I wrote about this a few years ago, I ended up coming to the conclusion that the guardian angel was a rather unusual thing in an intensely doctrinal and polemical and competitive era in religion. It was a genuine open matter of opinion, whether this could be true or not. In fact, some theologians, some English Puritans and Calvinists, were able to kind of appropriate the Catholic motif of the guardian angel and fit it into their theology of predestination so that the elect, the chosen, the saved, have a guardian angel who represents and ensures their indefectibility from the path of salvation. And you get these rather sort of curious and frankly sort of scholastic 
and hypothetical imaginings of a pregnant mother with twins in the womb. And perhaps she is not elect and so does not have a guardian angel, but one or other of the twins are, and so they do. The guardian angel, like quite a lot of things, I think, in post-Reformation England, can be kind of picked up and repurposed and used in different ways to meet both theological and pastoral objectives. And at that theological level, I can see that this is perhaps quite clear in terms of how people wrote about it, but perhaps less clear in practice. How did, say, asking something of one's guardian angel differ from praying to a saint? Well, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things about a guardian angel is that they are always with you. So there's this sense of incredibly close companionship, which, you know, in some ways, I suppose, had a rather sort of threatening aspect. So, you know, some preachers would point out when you're doing something terribly sinful, you know, bear in mind that your guardian angel is there watching and is going to be able to report on you the last judgment. I mean, in some ways, I suppose, what the guardian angel ends up being is a kind of way of thinking about conscience and choice and free will and morality. And also, in fact, one of the things the guardian angel does or is believed to do is to, you know, protect you from mishaps. So one historian writing about this has spoken about the Christianization of chance and fortune. So, you know, good luck is not good luck. It's the result of an intercession of a guardian angel. It's also a way of accounting for things like messages in dreams, for example. That was sometimes thought to be a way that guardian angels could put messages into people's minds and try and steer them in the right moral direction. Two thoughts came to me from that. One is that in some ways a guardian angel was a bit like a sort of early modern version of our phones or Alexa or CCTV, the constant surveillance. But also I was struck by this sense, how could people be sure that the voice they heard was not God or a demon or a fairy for that matter? Well, exactly. Yes, this is another very long running theme which the theologians would have rather grandly referred to as discernment of spirits. If you have some kind of unusual, supernatural, as we might say, experience, how do you know what the source of that is? You know, we've managed to talk about ghosts without yet mentioning Hamlet, because that's the absolute crux of that play, is that Hamlet is visited by a spirit claiming to be the ghost of his father with a message about a murder and a usurpation from his uncle Claudius. But Hamlet does not know whether he can trust this message, you know, spirit of health or goblin damned. So that theological dilemma of the Reformation period is literally being put on stage by Shakespeare in that play. Okay, I want to come back to that in just a second. So do we have a sense that there's a distinction between how ordinary people are seeing ghosts and angels and the theologians? Well, almost certainly. Although here I think we encounter what's, of course, a universal problem that would be very familiar to you, which is that ordinary people don't ever really tell us or are not in a position to tell us what they were thinking or speaking. So we tend to get their views refracted or mediated or secondhand. And so quite often we are relying on what elite sources tell us about what ordinary people are thinking. And of course, that can be rather patronising and maybe slightly distorted. I say sometimes with my tongue slightly in cheek that the great tragedy of early modern England is that there was no Spanish Inquisition because the Spanish Inquisition... (laughs) 
for all its faults, was very, very interested in what ordinary people thought. And so historians of culture and belief in early modern Spain can find out a tremendous amount about people's unorthodox beliefs around saints and angels and spirits. But the church courts in England, frankly, were much more concerned about whether people paid their tithes or not and didn't ask them questions about ghosts. So it's particularly hard, I think, in the English Protestant context to find any sort of first-hand evidence about what ordinary people thought. I mean, having said that, I think it's probably fair to assume that ordinary people were less concerned with the theological niceties and were rather more concerned with the practicalities of what spirits might be able to tell them or be able to do for them. They were probably a little bit less concerned with the very clear kind of classifications of different kinds of spirits. I mean, my sense is that in what we might, for want of a better term, call popular culture, then um, all kinds of angels, ghosts, demons, fairies of various kinds kind of promiscuously work together and the distinctions are not at all as clear as they perhaps appear to later historians and, and folklorists. But it does seem, as far as we can tell, that for a long time, ordinary people probably did carry on entertaining the possibility of ghosts and angels appearing to them. We shouldn't, I think, imagine that popular culture is impervious to reform. I mean, one of the things that does seem to happen, and probably happens pretty quickly, is that these kind of narratives become decatholicized. So references to purgatory and requests for prayer for the dead disappear from accounts of hauntings from a pretty early stage. And in a sense, that's probably just part of a kind of longer process because ghost beliefs are probably immemorial, as it were, and certainly predate medieval Christianity. And you could say one of the things that medieval Christianity does brilliantly well is to co-opt pre-existing beliefs about the return, the revenance of spirits of the dead and fit them into this theological framework of purgatory. But when purgatory is taken away, perhaps some of those older purposes of ghosts reassert themselves. And Protestant theology, post-Reformation church, is probably rather less successful than the medieval Catholic one had been at getting ghosts to fit, which is maybe just a way of saying that actually, I think the whole cultural and religious scene of the post-Reformation world is tremendously and rather wonderfully and interestingly complicated, fragmented, and not at all neat and straightforward. So there's a sense that ghosts and their fellows are culturally useful. And you mentioned Hamlet, but we do see ghosts in lots of plays at the time. Is it just that sense that they can carry competing ideas of faith and hold that sort of complexity about what happens after death? Is that why we see so much of them in literary outputs at the time? I think that's right. So yes, the ghost is culturally tremendously useful, potentially as a kind of truth teller, as somebody from outside of the confines of normal society who has kind of privileged access to knowledge. And so apart from accounts of quote unquote, real hauntings, there's certainly a literary genre, not just in plays, but in pamphlets and poetry of figures from history returning, either from recent history or from longer ago history, returning to kind of denounce the sins of the present age and so on. In drama, of course, ghosts, as in Hamlet, are tremendously useful plot devices. 
they're intrinsically kind of interesting and they introduce a kind of, you know, frisson of fear and horror into the plot. So I suppose that's important. At the risk of sounding a bit old fashioned about this, I do think there is something a bit unusual and special about Shakespeare. I think I'm right in saying unique among all the output of the Elizabethan stage in very explicitly staging this theological dilemma about you know whether the ghost is a quote-unquote a Catholic ghost or a Protestant ghost. The ghost itself talks about, I I'm trying to remember the exact quote here, but how he has been confined fast in fires till the crimes of my days of nature are burnt and purged away. I mean, you know, that is pretty obviously a reference to Catholic notions of scripture. Whereas although there are lots of ghosts in plays by Shakespeare's contemporaries, Often these are in classical settings, so they're Roman and Greek ghosts. They're coming back from Hades, and you know that's not so much of a theological problem. So I think it's part of the daring of Shakespeare, if you like, that he takes what's still a very topical issue at the end of the 16th century. We're only you know a couple of generations into a Protestant society, and looks to see what dramatic potential he can get out of it. For my money, there's probably not a lot of mileage in what have been very long-running arguments about whether Shakespeare intends the ghost to be seen as a demon or as a genuine Catholic spirit, and therefore whether the play is a pro-Protestant play or a pro-Catholic play and what that may tell us about Shakespeare's own leanings on this. I mean, I think he just because he's such a professional, instinctively sees the dramatic potential of this. And both Hamlet and the audience, you know, remain unsure about what exactly the ghost's intentions and true origins are. Well, Peter, you're being very controversial there, saying that Shakespeare elevated the genre. My last question to you then, I had been going to ask you when and why we see the transformation of the ghost story into something that was supernatural and real, but becomes just supernatural fiction. But from what you're saying... We have the fictions running alongside the quote-unquote real ghosts in the 16th and 17th centuries, and many people secretly believe a lot in ghosts today. So actually, in fact, do we always have the fiction and the appearances existing simultaneously, or do we see one overtaking the other? You're absolutely right. And you've sort of given the answer I think I might have given to that question. So there is a view, if you like, that ghosts go from being real to being unreal, and that they migrate from a world of truth to a world of explicit fiction, and that this is probably really an 18th century phenomenon, and it coincides with the beginnings of you know romantic movement and the idea of people wanting to stir sensation and get this sort of frisson, the rise of the Gothic novel famously at the end of the 18th century. And indeed, some people advance a rather straightforwardly economic and mercenary motive for this. 1724, the British Parliament passes a new Stamp Act, which taxes publications but puts a higher rate of duty on publications that are concerned with news or intelligences, is the phrase, than on things which are just dealing with literature and history. So there's a kind of monetary incentive for what had been this genre of true news from Ipswich, of a ghost that can no longer be true news. So it's moving more in a fictional direction. But... I think you're absolutely right. It's much more complicated than that. And ghosts have always been both fictional and in some sense real. I mean, in the past and still sort of now. Whenever we talk about ghosts in a historical setting, we just instinctively add the word stories. These are narratives. And even when they purport to be in some sense true, 
They are structured narratives which are being partly consumed for the purposes of entertainment and enjoyment. So I think, you know, ghosts are troublemakers in all kinds of ways, and they're historiographically troublemakers as well. They problematize some of these very neat narratives about breaks and milestones and turning points in history and straightforward processes of secularization. Peter Marshall, thank you so much. That was immensely enjoyable. Thank you so much for joining us on Not Just the Tudors. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at not just Tudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.